Welcome to Dharma Live Online. Good to see everybody this evening. Um, so this evening, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, uh, where we are, which is the third foundation of mindfulness. We talked about the body and feelings and um, this teaching of Satipatthana, which is really a very important aspect of the practice. It's mindfulness. And in many ways, it's everything. You know, without mindfulness, without some degree of awareness, some quality of, of remembrance, of awareness, of recollection, however you want to think about it, sort of like all bets are off. You know, if we don't have, and I think this is really what, um, when the Buddha woke up, we could say he's awake. This, uh, this, I think he he states it relatively clearly. This was the mechanism that allowed him to experience what he experienced, or allowed him to do what he did, which was which was basically just being able to witness or to monitor the mind as uh, a kind of event as something that's happening in, in the world, um, something that we can be aware of. And, I, and I, I think that it's really important to just kind of park on that for a minute. I think I know that I take that for granted. I know that we can all kind of take that for granted. But I remember my life before mindfulness, and it was fucking a nightmare, you know, and, and uh, without any degree, just being dictated by my conditioning and wanting pleasure pain dichotomy and all that stuff mindfulness really in many ways i think what it does is it gives us a fighting chance you know with some degree of awareness we actually have the ability to live differently and and hopefully better so tonight i want to i want to talk about the brahma vihara practices as an aspect of the third foundation of mindfulness um because a it doesn't get taught that way enough i don't think and i i think it's actually really uh, the so if we're talking about chitta mind, we also have to meet. We also have to realize and always include that that's really what's called heart mind. And um, when they think about the mind in Eastern cultures, they don't separate it out as much as we do. They talk about the mind, the, the basically the cognitive, emotional, even behavioral processes, all the mind. And when we talk about mind in American culture, modern culture, the mind has kind of undergone this radical psychologization, which means when we think about the mind, we mostly just think about psychology, um, which is very limited. Um, so when we develop, a, so we're, we're, we're ultimately what we're trying to do is to trying to develop a mind that's really beautiful, a mind that is a, a mind that we would like to be in a mind that's that's a, a kind mind, a caring mind, a gracious mind, an understanding mind. Um, it's really what we really want to try to develop. And I think so. So talking about kindness, metta as an aspect of of a mind quality. So when we cultivate the Brahma Viharas, these heart practices, what we're really cultivating um, in that practice is we're trying to to cultivate a mind state, a state of mind that uh, is able to, first of all, recognize that kindness is probably not a bad idea. So there is a cognitive element to it. We have to, to some degree, buy in to, to do the idea that this would be better for me. And then we, then we sit, we cultivate this state. And you guys have done this before, and we'll do it again tonight. Uh, but really just trying to um, develop a mind state that is uh, at ease, that's agreeable, that is um, kind, that is friendly. Uh, and we do that by saying phrases. We do that by spending time. This also to have to realize this is not a choice. We don't just choose to be kind. 
Uh, of course, that's an element to it. We have to, at some point, initially choose that we, again, value that. But you can't just make the choice tonight to say, okay, I hear what you're saying, Dave. I'm just going to choose to be kind to myself from now on. Right? That's not really got to happen. Um, so we have to cultivate that, just like mindfulness. Like we, we know what mindfulness is. We have some sense of it. You can't just choose. It's not like a switch you can just turn on and just have it. So it's something that you have to work for. You have to, you have to really, really what it is, it's to some degree, like everything else, it's really hours clocked. You know, if you want to get anything you've ever gotten good at your life, whether you play a, an instrument or you play music or uh, any skill or art or writing, anything that you do that you enjoy doing, you had to familiarize yourself with that activity. You had to practice. So we have to realize that these these aren't just moral values. These aren't just the list of the the, the moral values of Buddhism. These are mind states and mind qualities that we, we want to cultivate. And also we have to realize that they are actually, in fact, cultivatable. You know, they're, they're, they came with the software. You know, they came with the hard drive. Now, maybe we haven't located it or opened it or, or worked towards it. But I think we really have to understand that this word bhavana, uh, cultivate is really what we're trying to do with these practices. So we, we try to cultivate chitta bhavana, cultivating the mind, metta bhavana, cultivating this mind of kindness. And so, you know, the reason I, I, I tend to harp on this a bit more than most teachers, mostly because I've experienced um, a lot of dissatisfaction and a lot of non-fruition in my life and my practice as a result of not putting these things into action. So I can tell you having a mindfulness practice and having a Dharma practice that is absent of the Brahma Viharas is, for me, was pretty painful. Awareness alone is really not necessarily all that great. And now if, you, if you're like me, awareness alone with a little bit of hypervigilance uh, you know, some mindfulness and some hypervigilance with no kindness is actually no picnic. Um, and so generally speaking, I find as a teacher and somebody who has the unique privilege of talking to lots of people and having for many years, 15 years now, that my general assessment when I talk to people in other parts of the country are people who are quote unquote meditators or mindfulness practitioners. When I ask them about these Brahma Vihara practices, mostly what people say is that mostly what I find is people just aren't doing them. You know, people say, well, I went on retreat last year at IMS and we did a, we did a, a meta practice one day. It's like, okay, you did meta one day for an hour, like eight months ago. Do you really think that it took? You know, you've been being an asshole to yourself for 30 years. You think one hour of kindness practice is going to change the paradigm? You really, you really think that? Probably not. Right. So we so so one way we could say this is these are qualities of mind, their mental states, their attitudes of mind. They're actually really kind of a posture towards experience. So we want to develop a kind of habituated, um, learned, cultivated quality of kindness, uh, basically towards our gen towards not just ourselves and others. And sometimes we get too caught up in self and other, but really what it is, it's just being kind towards experience in general. It's it's it, it's a seeing the world through the lens of kindness. Now I can say the one thing about this that I that I have total proof and I totally believe this hook line and sinker is I used to 
years ago, for many years, and certainly in my teen years, early 20s, I experienced the world as a very unsafe, unkind, scary place that I basically hated. That was my experience perception of the world. I experienced the world as a much more kind, benevolent place, way more. And I don't actually believe that the world has changed all that much. So what's, what's changed? Well, I've changed. My mind has changed. Because, and this isn't that hard to buy into, but I think if you really reflect, your primary environment, the environment that you actually live in, is the environment of your mind, of your chitta. That's, that's ground zero. Okay? That's really ground zero. So it's really in your best interest. If you're going to get anything together, that's the thing to be getting together. And, and that's, to some degree, I think that's a fascinating idea, but it also does put, a, it also feels like it, it puts a lot of responsibility on us. And, and, and it does. And I think the Buddha puts a lot of responsibility on us. You know? As we said before in this group, uh, probably say, never stop saying that the Gabor Mate quote is, I'm not responsible for the mind that was created by the world, the, the way that my mind has been conditioned by the world that I, that I grew up in, that I lived in, but I can be responsible and I should be responsible for the mind that I create the world with every day, moment by moment. Right? So, so it's in my best interest and the best interest of those around me and really the best interest of the entire planet for me to develop this quality of kindness. Everybody's going to benefit. And that's not that hard to get in. That's not that, that hopefully isn't that hard of an idea to get behind. So that, that's just one of four. So we, so metta is, is the overarching concept, these metta practices of kindness. And then we, they, it needs to be, the metta wants to become more dynamic. So we have kindness, but kindness needs to develop a broader range of qualities. And the first one we talk about is compassion, which is, I think, is a grossly misunderstood concept. So when, 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 when life is hard, and when things are difficult, and there's loss, and there's trauma, and there's tragedy, and all these things that we, ex we have all experienced, kindness doesn't quite do the heavy lifting. So the kindness needs to be kind, but it also needs to be caring. It needs to uh, have compassion in it. And compassion is actually more about wisdom than it is about compassion. Compassion isn't just about caring for the sake of caring. Compassion is about actually being able and willing and able to help if I can. And the thing that sucks is that a lot of times I find myself in situations where I can't actually help. Somebody dies, some tragedy happens. I, 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 I find myself having kindness and a willingness to care, but I have that thwarted intention. I have that powerlessness of like, yeah, I can't fucking, I can't help. This, this is just really bad. And so I want to develop some capacity to be able to really handle that and to have some resiliency and have the wisdom to understand like this, this is, this is, this is life. This is part of life. And the wisdom to understand that this is part of our common humanity. Everybody goes through this stuff. You know, everybody gets old, everybody gets sick, everybody dies, everybody knows people who have died. Everybody has people in your life that you cared about that died or relationships ended. We, we all have this universal experience of loss. We all know what it is. 
And most of us, if we're honest, would probably admit that we're not really so great at handling it. Right. And so compassion is really, really hard. So it's, it's being able to be in, in the, in the, the pain of the experience with, without getting the rug pulled out from underneath us. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a lot of things the, the really the three, the three things that they talk about is that the three that would allow us to even have compassion is first of all, mindfulness, right? There needs to be some awareness of the context of the situation. Uh, there also needs to be kindness, uh, friendliness. Uh, uh, I see you. I, I'm willing to be in this experience with myself or with the other person. And the third one, of course, is this: is, is just seeing this through the lens of a common humanity and not becoming the victim of the circumstance uh, or having pity for the other person when it's the other person. So we also have these these near enemies of compassion and the near enemy of compassion, which is something that looks like compassion that's not compassion, is, is really pity and also grief. Grief is a word that we hear about, we talk about a lot in our culture that I think is really grossly misunderstood and people talk about it in ways I think that's mostly not helpful. Uh, grief is really, and from a Buddhist perspective, is the near enemy of compassion. Um, and so a lot of times what needs to happen to move it through the system, and this sucks too, this is my least favorite thing to do, at least historically, is actually be sad, you know? Uh, to actually experience, to fully allow ourselves to experience the emotion of sadness, the mind state of sadness, the, the acknowledgement and feeling all of the feelings in the mind-body system as a result of, of having to sit and deal with real loss in the context of the moment in which we're experiencing it. It's not something people generally do well. And so the, the, the repression of that sadness usually manifests as a kind of grief. Uh, and 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 the grief obviously usually plays into some kind of narrative that we have about how we're this person who has to go through these hard things, and why am I this person who has to go through these hard things? So pity and grief can a lot of times look like compassion, but they're not. They're actually enemies, or they're obstacles to that compassion. All right. So there's a you know, so we can have this kind of wisdom mind state of like understanding this. This is like. This is going to happen to all of us. I mean, I, I, I guarantee you there's not a person on the screen who doesn't know what I'm talking about right now. Right. So that's where the meta, the kind of, it gives us the ability. We can, we, we can, we can learn how to be in those experiences without be, becoming overwhelmed. And, it, and it's helpful for ourselves and it's helpful for other people. And even if we can't do nothing, just sitting there with somebody who's in that experience is actually pretty helpful. Right. Just, just, just being able to say, I understand what's going on here. I understand there's nothing I can do, but I can at least sit here with you. And I can be in this experience with you. Um, and, and, and that maybe is the best that anybody could do. And I, I don't think it's something that generally people are good at or even willing to do. So we don't want to get too doom and gloom, right? There's also uh, this other side of life. There's also the beauty and there's the joy and there's the, the wonder and, you know, life has both. That's the thing that makes this shit so damn hard is life is a both thing. And so our capacity to experience and cultivate compassion in the face of loss and to be in true sadness is equally related to our ability to experience joy. 
right and and you know the joy is one of these things we can have destructive joy we can have a kind of dysfunctional relationship to joy which at first we hear that we're like well why would you do that that joy should be easy right like joy is pleasant we all like joy who doesn't want joy but if you get honest with yourself and you really kind of check it out you might notice that actually joy is not something that you actually access very well right and largely that's mostly that's due to a a kind of feeling of unworthiness. I don't deserve to have joy. Uh, or joy is dangerous. That was always my thing. Joy is dangerous because the, because if the source of my joy uh, goes away, uh, then the pain of the loss of that will be so fucking brutal that I'm not even going to do it. In fact, I always thought joy was kind of a fool's errand. I was like, don't get too excited, dude, because fucking this shit ain't going to last and you're going to be disappointed when it goes away. So just settle your losses and just kind of, and then you then we slide into this kind of apathy or kind of we can slide into these other mental states where we just want to play it safe. Don't get too excited. You know, the other, the, those of you who are waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, know what I'm talking about. Yeah, things are good now, but fucking any second now, shit's going to suck again, and you'll be disappointed when it does. So be, don't be an idiot. Don't be stupid. Don't be foolish. Don't get too happy. <laughs> and then there's a blockage to joy, right? So we, we really want to – and these, these, these are heart practices, but this is, there's, a, there's a very much a large psychological cognitive dimension to these things that we have to be honest about, you know? Uh, and so the, the so that you know you can't just decide to have gratitude and you just can't decide to participate in joy you have to actually work at it right so so that's something that we just have to kind of realize and it's also to say again that see these, the way i'm talking about it tonight these are mindfulness practices okay these are things that can be developed um and, and I think if we're honest, these are things that we would like to develop. These are qualities that we probably have noticed would be beneficial to us. Um, and we can also be, have to be honest about the fact that sometimes we can get disappointed because we're like uh, not happy with our ability to do so at this point. And that's okay too. And then the last one, uh, equanimity, which is a word that I think equanimity is a word that you don't hear. It's not an everyday word. Like you hear the word gratitude. We all know what gratitude is. Compassion is a fairly common word, kindness. But equanimity, the problem with equanimity, I find, is there's not really an English term, which is weird to me. There's not really an English term that we could use to describe the complexity of the mind state of equanimity. Because minds, equanimity is really about understanding. It's about balance, and it's about really acknowledging kind of in, in many ways everything I've already said that life is – so the perspective of equanimity, there's a perspective, there's a view that acknowledges wholeheartedly that life is going to be uh, an experience that is going to have both joy and tragedy, tragedy and beauty, joy and sorrow. Those are part of the deal. You're all, we're all, we all get both. It's a both and situation. And so if that's true, if we can get behind that, it's kind of hard to argue with that. Then, it, then what we want to be able to do is we want to develop kindness and compassion when things are tragic and we want to develop kindness and gratitude when things are beautiful and joyous so that we can actually participate in life. 
we want to be able to wholeheartedly participate in life. And uh, I don't think there's a lot of people who can actually do that. And that, that, that's actually kind of sad. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I look at the world. I don't see a lot of people do. I see people doing lots of things. I don't see very many people doing that. Right. And so this is where practice can become a little bit more, even dare I say exciting where it's like, okay, like, well, shit, then I'm at a, let's get down to it. And then equanimity has that perspective, but equanimity also has the wisdom and can understand the context, the situational ethic of knowing the context of the situation that we find ourselves in and knowing what would be the appropriate response. You know, what, what, what is going to be helpful in this situation? Um, and these are all qualities of mind. There's only four of them, which is good. They, they work together. So the metta system, these are, this is a system that works together that kind of acknowledges all, all of what I've said and, and, and kind of makes a lot of sense. It's, I think, one of the best systems, one of the best Dharma systems. Because I, I, I can't imagine anybody's confused by anything I've said so far. It's pretty clear that, that this is what's going on. Right. And so, um, you know, I find and I teach and I encourage people to have a practice where you're doing one or two of these in rotation every week, you know, and so most people who have mindfulness practices, I meet people all the time and most people just kind of do mindfulness of breathing or, you know, they kind of have a, they sit every day and they just kind of pay attention to the body and the breath and they don't do these. These practices are also they're not passive they're very active these are very much a, of a doing nature you know and so they 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 can actually be really kind of uh, invigorating in that way they can also be challenging in that way because it's you know to sit down and close your eyes and cultivate compassion is not really that easy of a thing to do you know what i mean it's not intuitive it's not obvious it's not clear like mindfulness of breathing, you put your attention on the breath, you notice the mind wander, you bring the attention back. That's pretty straightforward, right? But to sit down and to feel into the body and notice any pain or anguish or uh, challenges or whatever, and to try to recognize that and extend compassion towards that, I, I can't really tell you how to do that can't really give you some fucking technique other than using phrases a little bit. So each person is tasked with the burden of trying to learn how to do that on our own. And you have to, you, only you can do it. Nobody can do it for you. Right. And and the good thing, the, the good news I, I can report is that it actually, once you're able to do it, you're just able to do it. Once you under, so to me, it's kind of a language. Once you can speak once you get the basic grammar of how that works, it's pretty uh, easy, actually. So the learning curve is very steep and very counterintuitive. It's kind of like playing guitar. I mean, I, get, I play guitar, so I use that analogy a lot. It takes a while to make the shapes of the chords and to play a little minor pentatonic scale and to be able to hold the strings down so they don't make the fart noise. It's, it takes a long time to do that. But as soon as you can strum three chords, you can basically play all the best songs you ever wanted to play. You know what I mean? Once you can bang out three chords, you're kind of you can kind of play anything. But until you can do that, you can't do shit. 
So we, it's, it's in our best interest to put the time in to really kind of be able to kind of get through that steep counterintuitive and at times very painful learning curve. And, and then, and then, and then once you're in there, you you kind of go, oh, okay, I, I get it. This isn't as elusive as I thought, or as complicated as I thought. Uh, and actually it, one thing you'll notice is that actually feels good. And who doesn't like things that feel good? I think most of us would admit that we like it when things feel good, <laughs> right? So um, I'll, I'll, I'll pause there and we'll do, we'll do a metta practice. I'll kind of hint on some of these other ones a little bit. So kind of a full Brahma Vihara heart practice. Uh, but I also want, I, I, I'm, I, I say heart practice, but I also want to, again, emphasize that this is a mindfulness practice. We call it heart practices, but it's a, it's, it is the cultivation of the heart, but it is also the cultivation of a mental state, a, a mental attitude that is able to kind of at least call these qualities to mind in some way. So having somewhat of a sense of what kindness might feel like or compassion might feel like. And then and once you once you kind of can get into that a little bit, you're kind of you're in good shape. And we've been talking about the fourth foundation of mindfulness for a while now. And um which uh, I hope people are getting some more clarity on that because I think it's very important. I think it's a really good practice, but it's hard to practice things if you're not sure what to be practicing. So I thought I would talk about uh, end the year on the uh, fourth foundation and talking about um, uh, how we can see the Brahma Viharas actually through the lens of the fourth foundation, which is I think actually where they belong. Um, let me just get this note out here. So when you look at, so if you, if you boil it down, and this is helpful, I think, we've talked about this before. If you look at the fourth foundation of mindfulness as a task, which is kind of what it is, it's, uh, let, me, let me shut off the background noise for y'all. Someone's making a bracket out there. Um, if you look at the fourth foundation of mindfulness as a task, as what are we supposed to be doing if we were practicing it, uh, Analyo's assumption, and I think this is really good, he's basically saying that it's actually an effort thing, and it's about uh, overcoming the hindrances um, and developing the awakening factors, um, which, which, is, which is pretty good because that's not that complicated um, of an idea to understand. So uh, we see that we have, and the hindrances are a big topic, right? So we, so we try to recognize these things and overcome these things. And then you have these awakening factors, which are, in which there's seven, um, which is kind of a lot. Um, and so we talked about them to some degree. Um, and so the other thing, the way to look at them, and I think this is actually the more useful way to look at them. So if you look at the awakening factors you have with the first one is mindfulness, which is probably no surprise. So, so basically the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the first thing that you have to do is establish mindfulness, right? So the, the, if that hasn't been done, there's not much you can do. So it's, 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 it's establishing mindfulness and then really what they would call in neuroscience metacognitive awareness, the uh, mindfulness of the mind as a mental event, or just being aware of the activity or the behavior, the mood, all these different features of the mind, which can be right, quite subtle. So, you know, the top two hindrances are a good example, craving and aversion. Craving and aversion aren't that hard to recognize. Right. It's pretty easy to be aware of when you're really in some severe wanting 
or some wanting to get rid of. And, and I think that if we just spent a lot of time on those two, we'd, we'd be a lot happier. And so to do that, there has to be mindfulness, right? We recognize those things. And then the awakening factors are a little bit technical because then there's mindfulness and then there's Dhamma Vichaya, which is to investigate or to be interested or to be curious, which then gives rise to an energy that's kind of a courageous energy, which then gives rise to a kind of a joy, a kind of a contentment, uh, a kind of focus, and then kind of an equanimity, which uh, to me is... Um, you know, I don't find that to be that helpful in my, it's hard to do those on the go. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't see those a lot. So if you, if you look, so the other question, I, I've, I've talked to many people about this and I never got a good answer until I came up with, with one of my own. And I've talked to John Peacock and some other people about it. Stephen Bastard also agrees, is that the, the, the big question is for a lot of people, well, where in the teachings of mindfulness are the Brahma Viharas? You know, there's all these talks about kindness and compassion and equanimity and gratitude. How come they're not mentioned in the Satipatthana? And if they are in the teachings on mindfulness, where are they? And so uh, I think where they are, and this has pretty been pretty well backed up, is that they're a fourth foundational mindfulness practice. So when you look at overcoming the hindrances, uh, you could stand the awakening factors in the Brahma Viharas right next to each other in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And now I think that's a lot more useful. Because once I establish mindfulness, the first question can be, can I meet this experience with kindness? Now, that's a lot easier of a question to reflect on than, can I investigate this? Can I arouse energy and courage and joy and contentment? Like, that's hard to do on the go. Um, But I can usually uh, bring kindness to myself if I'm caught up in a lot of craving and aversion or restlessness. The other features, I think, that are more uh, explicit about the Brahma Viharas is they're all um, functions of nibbana. They're all cool. They all cool things down. They cool the mind down. They all have that coolness to them. So, so this is why metta vipassana has always been my my primary teaching. Because in metta vipassana, your mindfulness is present, and then there's kindness, and then mindfulness is present, and then there's kindness or friendliness. You know, we don't want to set the bar too high. Or even as Sharon Salzberg's now saying, just a kind of sense of a basic okayness. And so what that means is there's mindfulness and then there's a sense of like, whatever's happening right now, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, and that, that cools down the fixing and the avoiding and the changing and the controlling and the should be having and the shouldn't be having. It really cools that down. And then uh, in that mindfulness uh, and the kindness, then we can start to make an assessment of uh, is, is care necessary or appropriate right now? Is And a lot of times, like for me, like this is super helpful when we're in aversion, which I would say is probably my, uh, the hindrance that I experienced the most is um, I, I have a lot of aversion in my mind a lot of the time. I find myself in so much of the time in moments where I'm really not wanting whatever the fuck this is. Shouldn't be happening. I have a lot of that in my mind. And, and that, that also can give rise to a kind of controlling which is very dangerous for me to think that I can kind of now, how do I control, how can I control the situation uh, so that way um, there's a ver- there's not, there, that I can be over this aversion. So if I can be aware of that and go, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it really backs that down a little bit. And then a lot of times the aversion is, um, a lot of times for me, it's hard to me to tech because I don't, to talk about fear, I, I wouldn't say that uh, I wouldn't assess myself as being a fearful person. I think I have a fairly 
healthy relationship to fear. But when fear is at a very subtle, subtle level, I don't really detect it. And so a lot of times the aversion is in, in rooting in this idea of I'm afraid something bad is going to happen. I'm afraid something's not going to work out. So a lot of times aversion and fear, I, I think, uh, are really, really connected. The other question that we ask is that when you start to study the Abhidharma, when you start looking at the list of all the different mental factors in which is 52, there's one thing that's not on the list that usually stands out for most people and it stood out for me is fear. The, the Buddha doesn't really list fear amongst any of the mental factors, which I always thought was odd because fear seems like a really common experience, doesn't it? Um, fear is a very uh, common experience that we all have. So I think that fear, me and John have talked about this before, fear is an aspect of aversion. So aversion is fear, it, it, it's things I don't want to happen. Uh, things that I'm afraid things are going to happen. I'm afraid things aren't going to work out. And so aversion, a lot of times people associate aversion with ill will or hatred. But I actually think aversion is much more a product of fear than it is of anger and um, hatred. You can check that out on your on your own. But I have found that to be the case. Um, is that a lot of times the, the the not wanting is a kind of it's driven by a kind of fear. And of course, we we know uh, you probably have heard by now that the Buddha was keen on teaching a metta as the antidote to fear. So I think in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, if you can be aware of what's happening to some degree, with some degree of, of discernment, and you can bring a kinder, friendlier, okayness attitude to it. Whatever the intensity is of the moment that's challenging, it will come down a couple notches. It just, and then whether, whether we need to have compassion or gratitude or all that other stuff becomes irrelevant because I find that if I can just do that, if I can have mindfulness and kindness, then whatever the intensity of the situation is, it automatically comes down just by itself. Right? It just cools that right down. And then usually from there, then I can maybe assess, which would maybe be the second awakening factor. I can investigate, but I, I think the word is assess. I can appraise the situation and go, okay, like what's really going on here? Actually, what's really going on here is I'm, I'm, a lot of the things I'm worried about, afraid of, concerned with are actually nowhere to be found anywhere. It's all manufactured, right? A lot of this stuff is manufactured. And so to be able to do that, I have some, I have to have some degree of coolness because if I don't, then I'm just in reactivity, right? I'm just in all that second noble truth territory. I mean, I'm in, I'm in the hindrances. I'm reacting. Um, I'm not seeing things very, very clearly. My mind is kind of foggy. And then, you know, I'm defining my entire narrative of my life by the contents of the present moment and in some way my life is a total failure because i can't like get into this bank account because i can't fucking get the password and i can't get the password emailed to me because the email i set it up with is an email i don't even use anymore you ever being you know what i'm saying and like my whole life is resting on the fact that i can't get into this through this wall right and 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 so that's a really myopic kind of that's see that's kind of where concentration becomes problematic because in that moment i'm very concentrated right and so we get that's what happens is when we get myopic when we get caught too much up in the contents of the situation we don't see it clearly we get kind of bought in and once we get caught in that reactivity all kinds of different things can kind of get in there 
And then that's just kind of that, that, that samsaric loop of going round and round, running through the different, the different aspects of dependent origination where there's feeling, I don't like how this feels. I'm wanting it to be different. I'm clinging, I'm craving, and I'm just spinning around and around. Right. And you can do that for a long time. You know, and so what's happening is there's, there's not really mindfulness uh, and there's certainly not kindness. There's just reactivity. So in many ways, the, uh, the teachings of the fourth foundation of mindfulness bring us from the experience of reactivity into the experience of Nibbana. They're trying to bring us out of that second truth territory into that third area, trying to bring us into that and then into the path so that we can live. That's why they're called hindrances. Right. And so the other way to think about these is actually as relational mindfulness practices. Some people use this word. My friend Eden Tall, I have it here somewhere. Deborah Eden Tall, some of you might know her. She's actually quite good. She has a book called Relational Mindfulness. That's actually really a pretty good book. Because if we can see the 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 paradigm of the fourth foundation, what we're seeing is really what we're seeing is our relationship to our experience not my relationship to myself not my relationship to the world not my relation relationship to something specific but my general relationship towards the experience that i'm having right now and right now i am not wanting the experience i'm having i'm wanting a different experience to be happening right now You've probably seen this. This is a very common event for the humans. This is a very easy thing to slide into. I'm wanting my experience to be other than the way it is. And then I assault a whole bunch of cognitive uh, strategies and ideas and views on how I can make the experience different or or I can feel bad about how the experience isn't different. So it's ultimately, uh, Kinchino Weber says this, I think it's quite good. He says Dharma practice is about developing an intelligent relationship to our experience. Uh, Just being intelligent uh, about how to handle right now. Right. And so then, then that really makes us understand that mindfulness really has to be from, for us to really thrive as human beings, mindful. We want to have mindfulness. That's why there's so much emphasis on it, of course. Right. Uh, is because it gives us really the way that I think about it is with mindfulness, you now have a fighting chance. You might be able to handle the situation skillfully. You might not, but at least you have a chance. You have an opportunity to do something different to see things more different, to change your relationship experience. And so that just becomes uh, a factor. Now, if you wanted to really think about it, if you wanted to kind of like trace it backwards, if you wanted to reverse engineer it from the, from the third foundation on down, what you see is that if you want to kind of see what's underneath it. So if, if, if the fourth foundation of mindfulness has a version in it, then in the third foundation of mindfulness, there's probably some hatred or some ill will. There's an attitude of mind of not wanting. I actually find it easier to to to, to assess that by looking at the contents of my. I can I can better assess the contents than I can the attitude of mind. That's why the third foundation of mindfulness practice I think is the hardest of all four, because it's like really 
hard to kind of but it but if you but if you get good at the fourth you can just assume i'm like if i'm hindered or i'm wanting my experience to be different i can obviously assume that what's going on in the third foundation of mindfulness is a lot of resistance so i can back into that and cool that down now if i back even a little bit further probably what's going on in the vedana is unpleasantness right there's probably a felt sense of the of really really unpleasantness and then if I go down a little bit further into the first foundation of mindfulness, then we're back to the reality of dukkha, right? The dukkha in the body. And so these, all these things arise out of that. So um, we can kind of reverse engineer that. So then we can kind of bring a little bit more awareness into the body, try to bring kindness into the body, a longer out breath. A lot of the basic pr- practices that we learn in mindfulness are all first foundation practices that, cool, that will cool this all down. So the, the thing about it that's interesting and I think helpful that the kind of both and the pros and the cons is that when you're trying to liberate the mind in this fourth foundation capacity, there's a lot. The, the good thing is there's lots and lots of different strategies and techniques that you can employ. The hard part is the fact that there's lots of different techniques and strategies that you can employ. So it, it, it's a matter of us finding out what works for you. You know, is that there's a there's a whole drop down menu of choice points that the Buddha says, well, try deeper breath, try breathing, try noticing the Vedana, try meeting it with kindness, try there's lots of different in the four Satipatthanas, there's lots of different interventions that can be developed, which is why the Buddha is really keen on training us in all four, so that way we can learn for ourselves which is the one that's gonna be helpful. So I think that when you think about the whole Satipatthanas, um it's only useful in your capacity to employ it within the present time right so so memorizing it and reading it and understanding it might have some value but the question is what sets of practices within the satipatthana structure have you noticed for yourself work and then developing those practices developing that which works for yourself uh and then trusting that and that we're all really quite different. So trying to think you have to learn and master every Satipatthana uh, practice is kind of a little bit of a fool's errand because you don't need to know them all. You just need to know which ones actually help you. It's taken me a long, long time to get that. And, And I have found that the reason I'm keen on this fourth foundation, I have found that for me, because I'm so identified with my mind and I live in my mind and, um, that I actually, I find that oftentimes the best thing I can do is actually use a fourth foundation practice to be aware of the contents of the experience of the, of the mind, because it's easy for me to detect. Craving and aversion, not very hard for me to notice those. Restlessness, not that hard. Lethargy, a little bit harder. Doubt's really hard. But it's good to be able to start to see these because we're, we're so much in our minds all the time, we can actually use the contents uh, as strategies to liberate. So again, we have to watch out for this idea that we fall into in meditation culture that somehow when we're practicing mindfulness, thinking is kind of a bad thing. Thinking is the enemy. Uh, and it's not. It actually can become a tool for liberation itself. Um, and so by using these Brahma Vihara practices, you can do that. So let's do some sitting for a bit and then we can talk about this some more if you like. 